Please take out your Bibles. I hope you brought one um, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. So New Testament, second book in the New Testament Gospel, Mark, chapter 13. Before we start the sermon, I want to mention one announcement that I forgot to make, um, but you can be looking for Mark while we do this. Next Sunday, we are having our congregational meeting, annual meeting after the worship service to uh, vote on the church budget for next year and to elect new elders and deacons. Um, So I invite you to stay for that. It'll be a brief meeting. And in your bulletin, uh, I believe there are names of the elders and deacon nominees, and many of them are newer names perhaps to you. And so we have biographies, of uh, small biographies um, of them, and they're outside in the foyer. They're on the, the welcome desk. So if you would like to grab one of those uh, biography sheets to read about the elders and deacons, uh, go right ahead. Um, it was a great idea to have that in the bulletin. Someone pointed out it should be in the bulletin. Well, we thought about putting it in the bulletin, and it just wasn't fitting like we wanted it to, and so we made the bad idea of setting them out in the foyer. But... We can still make good with that bad idea. Go grab one of those uh, those bio sheets out on the Welcome Center to read out to read about more um, about our elders and deacon nominees. Okay, here we go. Mark chapter thirteen, starting with verse. I'm going to start with verse twenty-four. But in those days, following that distress, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And we will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the tree Uh, As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and put his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows. Or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Advent is the season of the the church year right before Christmas when we watch for the coming of Christ, not the first coming, but his second coming, his return to the world. The scripture tells us 
about the importance of doing something. Just read through those last verses. And Jesus says there's something really important to be doing, to be watching. Just look at, look at those verses. Verse 33, be on guard, be alert. Just look at verse 34. There, there's there's a, 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 someone posted at the door to keep watch. Verse 35, Jesus says, therefore, keep watch. Verse 37, don't be caught sleeping. Watch. I, I say to everyone, watch. So we're used to watching for things at Christmas, aren't we? We're, we're used to watching for things. We're, we're watching for that the, 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 the Amazon truck to drive up to drop us off some packages. Maybe we're, we're watching for family to, to, to come over. You know, the grandma and grandpa, they're coming, and the kids are so excited. We're watching for grandma and grandpa. Maybe we're, 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 we're watching, if you're a kid or an adult, maybe you're watching for the, the pile of presents to grow underneath the Christmas tree. That's something fun to watch for. Well, Jesus says, watch for my return. Do you watch for Jesus' return with the same anticipation and the same eagerness as you do as you watch for other things? I want you to think about that question this morning. How do you watch well for Jesus' return? Here's a statement that we are going to focus on today. It's this. Jesus wants our hearts to be watchful for his return. Now, why do you think I wrote he wants our hearts to be watchful? Why not just Jesus wants us to be watchful for his returning? Because Jesus wants our hearts to be watching. In other words, Jesus does not want us to think about his return as a puzzle to be solved. And plenty of people think of it as a puzzle with clues, with codes, with with other instructions kind of laid out in Scripture, and if you put it all together in the right order, it's going to indicate, maybe not the hour or the day, but around when he will return. But, but Jesus, Jesus isn't presenting this as a puzzle to be solved. Rather, his coming is something for our hearts to watch for and long for. Jesus wants us to watch in our hearts for our hearts to really long for his coming. We see that, especially if we turn, I'm going to turn us to the very beginning of chapter 13. And I want you to to look through a few verses, and we're going to see that this really is a heart issue. So the very beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples. They're walking through the temple. One of his disciples says to him in verse 1, Look, teacher, look, look at these massive stones. They're standing in the temple. The temple was amazing. Look at these massive stones in this, in this temple. What, what magnificent buildings these are. Verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. And Jesus could have said a lot of things at this moment. He could have said, yeah, they're, they're pretty magnificent. Or, well, yeah, don't get caught up in that. Or, yeah, you know, I mean, he could have said lots of things. But look at what he says. He says, not one stone here that you see will be left on another. Everyone is going to be thrown down. Now, why did Jesus respond like that? See, there's someone, there's always that someone that likes to be the, you know, to, to burst 
the balloon, right? To believe to be the the balloon burster, or to poke holes in the plan, or to to be the party pooper. And it kind of seems like Jesus is playing that role right here. Let me let me just burst your bubble, your balloon. Let me let me poke a hole in your plan. Let, let, let me be the party pooper. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. The disciples are admiring the amazing Jewish temple. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to, to, to show his disciples there's an important Jerusalem. And they waited and they prayed. And 10 days later, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and the church was born. And the disciples began to experience what that paraclete was all about, that he was a comforter, that he was a friend, that he was a helper. Helper. Note what Jesus said. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. Note what he did not say. Listen, I have died and I'm risen from the grave, so I want you to go. And, and in your own strength, I want you to tell people about Jesus. Here is how it going, is going to work. I'm going to manage the ministry from Jerusalem. I want Peter, I want you to go to Rome. I want Matthew, I want you to go to Greece and Ethiopia. I want John to go to Ephesus. John, Mark, you're in the group now. I want you to go to Egypt. You'll be killed there, but I want you to go there. Thomas, you're going to go to India, and you're going to find some people that are going to kill you too. Simon the Zealot, you go to Egypt, Libya, and Mauritania. James, you're going to stay with me in Jerusalem. Did he say anything like that? No. What he told his disciples is that he was leaving but help was coming. Don't do anything without the Spirit of God. And we know that 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in power. Now, Pentecost is one of the colossal events in the life of the Christian church. But it doesn't get the billing that Christmas, Good Friday, Good Friday and Easter get. Why is Pentecost <clears throat> so important? You see, prior to Pentecost, only the prophets, priests, and kings had the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon their life. But with, <clears throat> but with Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was now fully available to all believers. Peter spoke of this in Acts 2, 38 and 29. 39, Peter replied, Repent. Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. And he promised Abraham, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. All of the nations of the earth. Folks, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. It is through Christ that all of the nations of the earth are blessed. So, as you place your faith in Christ, you are an heir of that promise, that covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. You are one of those stars in the night sky. You are one of those grains of sand that God mentioned. 
Point number four, the Bible teaches that we are a new creation in Christ. Again, writing to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Growing up in Maine in the small town where where I lived, I was what the school district called a walker. That means that my parents' house is close enough to the school such that a bus didn't come through our neighborhood. I had to walk, you know, between a quarter, half mile to school every day. That was a lot of fun in the winter with three feet of snow and 20 degrees and a 30-mile-an-hour wind whipping off the Atlantic Ocean. But our path to school went through this little forested area and then out into this big field before we got to the school. And in the springtime, when we walked through that field, there were milkweeds all over it. Milkweeds growing up out of the field. And on those milkweeds were monarch caterpillars. And we used to take those caterpillars and a handful of milkweeds and go home and put them into a jar and punch holes in the top so they could breathe and, and, and watch the caterpillars become chrysalis and then become these beautiful monarch butterflies. So let's say that I take one caterpillar and say his name is Fred. I take Fred and I put him in the jar. I watch him do his thing and he spins his cocoon and out of that chrysalis, comes this beautiful butterfly. That's still Fred. In essence, Fred was the caterpillar. And in essence, Fred was the butterfly. But Fred has been transformed completely. He has been changed completely. He is a new creation, even though my caterpillar Fred has changed his form. That's kind of what it's like when we become new creations in the Christ Jesus. It's It's a spiritual regeneration a new birth, a new relational standing with God from enemies to peace to children of God to the workmanship of God. That's all part of being this new creation in Christ. Finally, we are ambassadors for Christ. Again, writing to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, that's their sins, against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, As ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. 
So when we accept Christ and are forgiven, it's as though Jesus comes up to us and he throws his robe of righteousness and purity and holiness over us so that when we stand in the presence of God, all he sees is Christ's reflection of purity and holiness and blamelessness shining back at him. We become the righteousness of God. We also become ambassadors for Christ. In verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we read early in the verse that God gives us this ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God. Our trespasses, our sins are not counted against us. And God gives us this ministry of reconciliation. All of you. Those of you who are Christians have this ministry of reconciliation. And as such, you are an ambassador for Christ. So Benjamin Franklin was our ambassador to France, pleading the case of the new colonies in North America. But as Christians, you are the ambassadors of Jesus to this dying and upside-down crazy world that is outside the doors of Hope Church. God has entrusted you with that message of reconciliation. That's just amazing. It, that, that is humbling and daunting to me all at the same time. And you don't have to be standing up here on Sunday morning preaching to be a minister of reconciliation, to be ambassador of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ no matter where you are and where you go in life, in your workplace, in your families, in your neighborhoods, when you're walking through the mall, when you go to a restaurant, you are an ambassador for Christ. He's entrusted you with that message. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. Indeed, Benjamin Franklin was an eclectic, and extraordinary individual of many talents. As we saw, he had many roles, many identities that he took on over the course of his life from philosopher, publisher, writer, statesman, educator, ambassador, abolitionist, all these things that that he took on. But in a similar way, we as Christians have multiple facets to our identity in Christ, multiple roles that we play as people who have been forgiven, who have been given new life, who have moved from death to life in Christ. So today I ask you, when you stand in front of the mirror, do you see the workmanship of God who is, who is to walk in good works standing before you? Do you see a new creation who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you see a child of God? Do you see the offspring of Abraham? Do you see an heir of Abraham's covenantal promise? Do you see an ambassador for Christ? Do you see the righteousness of God 
looking back at you in the mirror. Perhaps you look into the mirror and you see somebody looking back at you who has never placed their trust in God, to whom all of this seems alien. And if that's you, I implore you, I appeal to you, put your trust in Christ. If you feel that welling in your heart, in your mind, something's tugging on you today, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. I encourage you, don't let that feeling sit. Don't let those thoughts sit. Come and talk to me after service. We'll grab a bite to eat, get a cup of coffee, come pray with the prayer servants, come in and talk to Pastor Greg. Just don't let that that nudging, that urge slip away. For those of you who are Christians, who have already taken that step in faith with Christ, you are children of God. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You are his ambassadors. You are Christ's ambassadors in this dying world. You are the righteousness of God. If somebody tells you any different, they're lying to you. We've seen it from the word of God today. You'll walk out these doors and you'll be bombarded with a bunch of different images and messages about who you are, who you should be, who everybody wants you to be. Nonsense. We have looked at who we are in Christ today, and so hold on to that because there's a lot of noise out there, a lot of lies flying around there about who you are. So I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave today pondering this stuff, considering this stuff, because... God saved you for a reason, for a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. He loves you. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You are his ambassadors. So I challenge you to embrace your eclectic identity and the roles that you have as a Christian. I challenge you to embrace your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray, please. Father in heaven, we, uh, we again thank you that we could assemble today and worship you and sing to you and pray and journey through your word. Lord Jesus, you have indeed made a way for us to walk from death to life, from being enemies to being at peace with you. And we we thank you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that by the, the presence and abundance of your spirit, that you would meet each of us where we are, that you would cultivate in us um, faithful servants, faithful ambassadors, faithful children of God. Lord God, and, and we ask that you do all of this for your glory and your glory alone. Thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. And we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. So the more we do, the, you know, the more you preach, 
the more you you kind of start to understand why sometimes pastors will start a sermon with a, with a joke. Because uh, if you start with a joke, it's nothing serious. So if you stumble along while you're getting the nerves out, it's okay. The joke still works. But I have no joke, so we'll continue on. <laughs> All right. So three weeks ago, we had the pleasure of hearing Brother Paul uh, deliver the message. Uh, his sermon was on Psalm 51. And he mentioned that he loved that psalm so much, it meant so much to him, that he could actually preach Psalm 51 for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, right? And when I heard this, I got excited, right? I I peaked up a little bit. Because it reminds me of the Reformed tradition of taking a passage or an entire book of the Bible and working through that passage verse by verse, section by section. Now, through the years, there are some pastors who have famously gone extremely slow through passages. So, for some examples, John Calvin, he actually preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. And I don't know about you, but I think about, all right, so you got Job in the beginning, you got this whole, you know, Satan and, you know, the up in heaven thing, Job loses it. In the end, you got God and Job talking, but the main section is just a whole bunch of bad advice from his friends. I don't know how you get 159 sermons, but he does. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he actually preached 372 sermons on the book of Romans. This was his Friday night service. Each sermon was at least 50 minutes long. And though he only preached 372, he would have gone further except his health began to decline, and he retired, and he only got to Romans 14, verse 17. He had two whole chapters left to go. John MacArthur, he took over 40 years to preach through the entire New Testament, on an average of four verses per week. But my favorite, by far, is a Scottish Presbyterian by the name of James Durham. James Durham, for a period, he preached 72 consecutive sermons on Isaiah 53. That's one chapter, 12 verses, 72 sermons. 16 sermons were on the first verse alone. The original publication came in two volumes, and it was 1,100 pages long. Now, one of the reasons why these men's and other and others liked them, they did this is because they wanted to learn everything they could from every single text. The scripture was precious to them. They wanted to really see everything that God has for them in this text. But the only way this works is through hard work. You can't just look at a verse and magically you're going to now preach for 72 sermons on a single chapter. You're not going to be able to read through it a couple times and going to be able to preach for a few years through a book of the Bible. But no, this is hard work. Slow, tedious, mind-stretching work. It is struggling with the text. So this, this idea of work, this points us back to our brother Danny, how he preached. It is good for us to work. We're called to work. But today we're going to take it up a little bit further. We're going to talk specifically about hard work. Not just work, but hard work in the church. We spoke hard work 
in the church. So today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So as you begin to turn over there, join with me in prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now. We come before you as your bride, as brothers and sisters in Christ, united with you, united in faith, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, we just come before you saying, please open up our hearts, open up our minds to hear the words that you have for us today. Begin to speak to us and show us how we can apply these words, this passage, to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." So the first thing I want us to see is it says that Paul, he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you. Paul struggles for the church. The word here in the Greek is the word agon. It's where we get the idea of agony. There's an intensity with this word. Hebrews 12.1 tells us that we're to run with endurance the race or the agon that is set before us. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul tells Timothy to Fight the good fight, or to Aegon the good Aegon. And then later in the second Timothy four seven, he tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have agoned the good agon. There's intensity. The Greeks use this word to describe Olympic training. The idea was that you're gonna this is you're going to train, you're going to work, you're going to struggle to the point of exhaustion. And a good example of this idea of working ourselves to exhaustion is in the sport of ultramarathoners. So a marathon race, you know, you're going to run, you're going to run 26.2 miles. You know, if you're good, you're going to be somewhere and take you about three hours, four. If you're not so good, six hours, a little bit more. But for ultramarathoners, the runner, you're going to be running for at least a hundred miles. Those are the short races. They can get well into 200, 250 miles. You're going to be running for 24 to 36 hours on the short end and upwards of 90 hours on the, the, for the longer races. These races are brutal. They're grueling. It's a guarantee that if, as you run, your body will ache. Your knees, your hips, they're going to be on fire. Your, t- your feet are going to take a beating. You will get blisters. The be- your feet are going to take such a beating, and I don't understand why, but your toenails will actually just fall off because you're beating yourself up so bad. As you go, your body's going to begin to overheat, to overexert, to such to the point that you're going to drink some water, and you're going to immediately throw it back up. You cannot keep any liquids down, any food down, nothing. But after running all day, and you're only about halfway done, 
Your body's exhausted. You're dehydrated. You're really pushing yourself. You're not functioning well. But at this point, because of the darkness and the exhaustion, now you will begin to hallucinate. There's stories of people that will be running in the middle of the night and they will have a full-blown conversation with a friend who's 300 miles away asleep in his bed. They have no idea. They're just hallucinating. This type of, this is agon. This is struggling. This is training. This is pushing their bodies beyond what we think is even possible. And this is the intensity of what Paul is talking about. He's saying that he struggles for the church. He gives everything he has for the church. His life is consumed by the church. He's not struggling just for a day or just a few days. It's not just, but he's struggling day after day, week after week, year after year. He struggles. He agonizes. He agonizes to his dying breath. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that he worked harder than anyone. He struggled. But do we struggle? Can we say that we struggle? Can we say that we agonize for the church? Can we say we work for the church with the same intensity as an Olympic athlete or as an ultra marathon runner? Or is church just something that we think about here, think about there? Is it just a box we check on our weekly to-do list and nothing more? But notice that Paul is not aimlessly struggling for the church. He's not just going and just struggling and going in 100 miles an hour in 100 different directions. But he has a purpose. He has a focus. Just as the Olympic swimmer focuses on swimming, the runner on running, the lifter on lifting, Paul is also focused. And he's going to struggle and he wants to have three things happen. The first is Paul says he wants to struggle for their hearts to be encouraged we to watch diligently and with anticipation and desire sorry if we have not been doing that this season of advent give us this moment to retune our hearts to your grace the grace of coming again and setting this world right father we love you christ we love you holy spirit thank you for giving us your word this day. We pray all this in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen.